Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, with Pastor John King. Well, thank you everybody for coming out today. I know it's uh, the, the weather is starting to get a little chillier and a little wetter, and uh, we got uh, winter on its way, but I think in all honesty, for many of us, it's time to see this change of season continue on so we can get back to the springtime and all, but in any event... Uh, and some people, this is their favorite time of year. And so, God's got a little bit of everything for all of us, doesn't he? So, well, um, I just want to say real quickly, uh, for those of us, uh, uh, those of you who are praying, we had a couple of events this weekend that uh, went very well. Uh, first of all, we, uh, we sent several, or well, you parents sent several of your youth down with uh, Miss Heidi down to Fayetteville for a weekend, a youth retreat. And, uh, you know, our concern in, uh, in America in general, in the church in general, is children uh, typically t- tend to, there's a very disturbing trend among families and children. They typically tend to, if they're raised even in the church or a Christian home, uh, when they turn 18, they, if they move out, they also move out from church. And so, you know, we want to be here at this church. We want to support you as parents, uh, raising teens and younger ones up and coming. We want you to know that we're, we're praying for the, uh, the, the future of God's church. And we want to do the, all that we can to uh, partner with you, parents and grandparents, to, uh, to do whatever you need us to do. Uh, we, we feel like offering a solid biblical teaching to them, bring them to these retreats are, are important for their spiritual growth. And obviously, parents, you did too, so you let them go. And, uh, you know, we're very um, hopeful for our youth here, and and I know this is something that's spoken in many pulpits in America, and it's a great concern. So let's be sure to to lift up our kids and our families with kids. And let me just go out a little further on on a limb here and say that one of the reasons, and this is just something I'll leave you with on this particular subject, but one of the reasons why children uh, leave the church when they grow old is because they don't have a home in the church. They don't feel like they can relate to anybody in the church. Older people don't talk to them. They don't interact. They don't share. And I'm not talking about weird stuff. I'm just talking about having healthy relationships with all of our you know, brothers and sisters, young and old. Getting to know their names and saying things to them and speaking to them can make a big difference. And so I would just encourage you uh, with our youngers, our ba- you know, all the way from the toddlers and babies all the way up to our teens. Let's invest in them. Let's invest your prayers in them. Okay. Um, the other thing we had going on, I'm sorry, uh, this is a terrible intro. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, the other thing we had going on, folks, was uh, we went to Raleigh yesterday. Several of us went out and we attended the 40th week anniversary uh, of Love Life. It's a 40 week uh, prayer walk that happens every year. It starts in February and ends in November. And it's, it's aligned with the typical gestation period of a mom. And we had, I think, 421 folks showed up. Uh, it was a pretty good turnout. Uh, as it's, it's mainly in the Raleigh area, but we'd like to get out there a couple times a year to kind of help support that. And there's a lot happening, and there was just a lot of uh, crazy counter-protesters. Not that many. There were about four, we were over 400 strong, and there was about eight of them. So 400-plus people for, you know, praying for life and eight people 
praying for death. I mean, you know, it's kind of strange. Uh, but uh, it all went well, and, and uh, there was uh, one baby, one family decided to uh, not have an abortion. So, you know, it works. And, and, and like the Love Life people will tell you, you may have heard it, we're not there to protest or to picket. We're there to pray and to be a church, to be the church and uh, in the community, in our culture. So anyway, we had that. Uh, so, sorry for the extended announcements, but uh, today we're going to be in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We've already covered half of the letter of Ephesians, and we're going to start chapter 4. And we'll be in verses 1 through 6 today. Now, we did, uh, just as a reminder, we concluded chapter 3 as Paul resumed his prayer for the church. And he was praying that the Ephesians would comprehend and experience the love of Christ and the power of God. The power of God that is based on God's unlimited riches of glory, which are made available to all of us who have become his children by faith in Christ. You see, he's setting the stage for what we're going to talk about now in the weeks as we continue. To know where you sit in the Lord to begin with. To know the riches of his grace that have been given to you. The position you have in Christ. And then he starts his prayer and it focuses on enablement. It puts you and I, the reader, in a new position, if you will. Not only a deeper understanding, but a greater capacity for more and more of his working power in our lives. And that's his goal for us. And the ability to apply these truths to our lives. Now it's fair to ask, why does Paul concentrate so much on the things like being able to comprehend the love of Christ? Even putting, uh, you know, a description of member of measure, the width and the length and the depth and the height on it, when it's truly beyond us to fathom all of that and to understand all of that. And Paul gave an answer. He said, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's why you want to ponder those things. That's why you want to seek after those things. The things that are, yes, beyond your comprehension. But they're not beyond your experience. They're not beyond your experience as a Christian. And as we'll see in the second half of Ephesians, you and I need those doctrines, those teachings. They're so important to us to be strengthened and to grow in our faith in order to do what? Well, in order to deal with the life's application that we all have each and every day, personal relationships, marriage, family, our bosses, and spiritual warfare. We need to know where we sit and where we ultimately stand as we walk in Christ. So this week, we're going to begin with some very essential groundwork. As we start to examine our duty as Christians, in order to conduct our lives in a manner that God desires from us, we're going to be given the exhortation by Paul to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we're going to start with the subject of unity in the body of Christ. Let's read our passage. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all 
and through all and in you all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I ask, Lord God, that you would now speak, that you would speak the words of wisdom and life into our hearts. Lord, this isn't about a person. This is about our living God and the living word that you present to us. So, Lord, we just ask that you go before us. Get our minds and our hearts right, ready again for your word. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you do. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We start out, and he, he really starts out with an exhortation. Remember, we said this is application. This is the application part of the letter. And so he says, uh, you're to walk worthy. And this, this walking worthy is our response to grace. You know, after we've learned all these wonderful things and about our spiritual capacity and the place that we actually sit in the highest places with Christ. We have a seat in heaven. And all the things that he wants to do and all the things that he wants to empower us to do, our response to this grace is to walk worthily. So he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. So he's basing all these things that he's about to say on the doctrines that he's just taught us. I beseech you. In other words, I, I admonish you. I exhort you. I'm like, look, to, he's saying, you know, li- listen to what I have to say because it's time to put your faith into action. He says, you are to walk worthy. The word worthy is the Greek word axios. And this is where we get the English word axiom, an axiom. And this means to be of equal weight. And, you, you know, one way to look at it, it's almost, it's like a mathematical formula that needs to have an even measure of weight on either side to balance out. Something on each side of the equation, if you will. And we've seen the first part of the equation, where we sit in Christ and who we are. Now we have the other side of the equation, and it's our duty to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, if you have a King James Version, it would say of the vocation. Now, when we get to verse 4, we'll see that this word, again, meaning that the calling is actually the hope of your calling. And the hope is resulting from you and I being called into the kingdom of God to be saved. That's the hope of our calling. Of which you were called, in which you were invited. Each and every one of you have been invited into the kingdom of God. If you don't know Christ, he's inviting you into the kingdom of God. Our calling is made by God, and we have, you know, there's so you're called into the kingdom. We're also called to be equipped to do the work of the kingdom, the work of the Lord in the kingdom. And our calling is made by God. It's it's holy, it's heavenly, it's hopeful, and it's irrevocable. Romans 11.29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know, sometimes people wander off. They wander from the faith. They, they feel apart from God. They've lost their trust in the word of God. They've lost their trust in Christ, many, you know, in their minds. And, and you hear the testimonies when people wander off and they, maybe they're backslidden or whatever they've done. And then you, you realize they come and they have a testimony and they say to you, you know what, God called me. He didn't take that call away. The calling of God is irrevocable in my life and I want to serve him for the rest of my life. For the rest of my days. You notice how Paul is exhorting them to respond. You know, again, he's starting with the, the three major things that are important. Who they are in Christ. This is what we had. In, I'm going to kind of review a little bit what we went through in the first part. Who we are in Christ. Where we sit in Christ. And what they can expect. 
who we are in Christ. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing, is what he says. You're chosen from before the foundation of the earth. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and brought near to him. You've been made to be his inheritance. You've been made alive from a previously spiritually dead existence. Where they sit now in a spiritual house, in a family of God, where all religious barriers have been demolished. As living stones, shining for God on the earth and being seen by the principalities and powers of even heaven itself. Revealing the mystery of the church. And what you can expect is that God, as his power is exercised in and through our lives, a greater capacity to understand the love of Christ. How wide, how long, how deep, how high. And with this understanding, we can be filled with all the fullness of God, even as we grow old and our physical bodies deteriorate. But so often we get this backwards. We fail to learn to sit before we start to walk in our faith. We refuse to sit under biblical teaching or perhaps spend time with the Lord in our Bible study. Bible study is so important. You need that foundational doctrine in order to walk and to serve him. You will be challenged by the world. We try to perform for God in order to get him to love us more. Forgetting that we were once far, far off and we were bought by his own shed blood and his sovereign grace. He went to the cross while we were still sinners and he shed his blood on our behalf. So the believer does not need to strive to attain a position. It's not like the world where you're, you know, you're looking for that next level all the time. But rather to live a well-pleasing life unto God in the position already attained through the divine grace, wrote Lewis Chafer. We also, and we're going to see this in chapter 6, we try to fight our spiritual battles for victory in our own strength instead of from the victory that we already have. And that's why we lose so bad. The victory that's already been won by Christ, we will fight this battle, we fight this battle from a position of victory that's been won. We can't take on the enemy in our own strength. It'll never happen. So our response to all of this is to walk worthy of it. And Hughes wrote this. He said, Paul is saying that you and I should try to live our lives equal to the great blessing described in chapters 1 through 3. We're to be like the man who said, Christ has done so much for me. The rest of my life is a PS to his great work, a postscript to his great work. And you write down your life story in Christ, it's going to be a massive story. And everything that happens after that, I encourage you to journal and spend time writing it out. Tell the story, witness to others. Now, it's a fair question. You know, you say, well, I get that, but how are we to walk worthy? And so the remainder of Ephesians, as we said, answers the question how we walk worthy. As we will see, chapter 4 has two ways for you and I to get started on this journey of understanding. First, by walking in unity, which we'll spend the next two Sundays talking about. And then next, after that, we'll talk about walking in purity. You see, you have to have a foundation in order to walk for the Lord. 
So let's look at the three ways this charge is to be understood and applied. First of all, we're going to see that there are distinctive qualities to Christian unity. You know, what, what describes it? Next, we're going to see the very source of Christian unity. We, we don't create it. Where does it originate? And then finally, we're going to see the charge to build Christian unity. It takes effort on you and I. It's going to cost us something. So verses 2 to 3, we see the distinctive qualities. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. This This is what it looks like to walk. To be lowly, if you have an NIV, is to be completely humble and gentle. Completely humble and gentle. Lowliness, BLB, the Blue Letter Bible describes it, it defines it as having a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty, humility, and lowliness of mind. Now that is not what the world promotes by any stretch. Even if you do good works, it's a proud thing. In Paul's day, the Greco-Roman culture despised humility, and the reason is because it was considered to be a slave-like character, this gentleness, this humble state. William Barclay wrote this. He says, What was admired in that culture was the mega-souled or great-souled man who was complete and self-sufficient. That was, you know, somebody, something they would aspire to. In our modern times, uh, we've seen popular culture embrace these qualities all the time. Those of you who like to read, uh, one man pointed out the famous writer Ernest Hemingway, probably one of the greatest modern writers of the past century. As he portrayed himself in his prime, he writes... He would be a good example, brimming with male elan, that zeal or intensity for life, in control, self-assured, needing nothing. The proud white hunter in his book, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, to whom his adventurer mistress says, you're the most complete man I've ever known. Even more recently, we've seen those beer commercials featuring the most Interesting man, the world's most interesting man. Played by the actor Jonathan Goldsmith. You've seen it at the end of the advertisement and mostly the most interesting man, usually shown sitting in a nightclub or other social setting surrounded by several beautiful young women. And he says, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer a certain brand. Each commercial tends, ends with him with his signature sign-off. Stay Thirsty, my friends. You know, those advertisements were said to have increased beer sales for that particular company by 22%. And he was interviewed, this this actor, Goldsmith, was interviewed. And he realized how successful the campaign had been when a man came up to him in a restaurant telling Goldsmith that the man had asked his young son what did he wanted to be when he grew up. And of course, the son replied, I want to be the most interesting man in the world. He also said this actor had been approached in the street by such figures as Michael Jordan, Leonard DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence. He was even invited to meet former U.S. President Barack Obama on several occasions. He was an interesting man. And that's what the world looks for 
Not the humble, not the gentle, not the meek and the mild. And this gentleness, this second part of this character description that we're talking about, it often comes into play in our relationship with the world. John 5.18, I don't think we have a slide, it says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And we were reminded of that truth yesterday for those of us who who are out praying for the unborn in Raleigh. The, the hateful words that were being spewed out by those very few people and they were beating their pots and pans and they were honking their horns and the hateful words that they were spewing out. I had to remind myself, first of all, that the, we don't battle flesh and blood. Okay? We, we were going to be g- gentle and meek and mild under those conditions. And we were. But there was something in us, of course it rose up. Our flesh wanted to do something. We wanted to make them stop talking. <laughs> but we wanted to display Christ. You know, it's often been said that this character quality is not to be seen as weakness, but rather as, you've heard it before, strength under control. We can know this because of Jesus' character. Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, take my, yoke upon, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hughes writes this. He says, we see Jesus' steel-like meekness in two ways. First, in respect to himself, his power not to practice retaliation. And you know he had the ability. But also, his ability to forgive. And secondly, in his fierce defense of others or of the truth. So you can, you don't have to be, you know, what the society tells you, you can still be strong like the Lord. And if the Lord Jesus is described this way and his human side, where does that leave us? Are we being formed and conformed into his image? The third characteristic of this unity we're talking about, he says we're to do it with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. So no, Those who walk in unity are not only humble, kind of like a gentle breeze, but long-suffering. That means patient. That means we are to be slow in avenging wrongs. This literally means long-tempered. And we're called to bear with one another. King James Version says forbearance. That's to sustain and to endure. If you've been married for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. Proverbs 19.11 The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. We don't need to take revenge immediately without thinking and get things right. I'm not talking about protecting family or loved ones from imminent danger. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about not wanting to go out into the public square and speak at the school boards and speak in front of the abortion clinics. But we do it in a humble and gentle manner. But this characteristic of unity, especially this long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, it's essential. And you guys know this because sooner or later, you and I are going to have disagreements. Yes, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are going to have disagreements. We're going to have hurt feelings. We're going to have misunderstanding. 
And so we're not talking about some kind of a you know, white-knuckle approach where we sort of tolerate each other. It needs to be sincere love. The Apostle Peter gives to you and I a roadmap, four, four short verses, a roadmap for this sincerity in his first letter. 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Since you have been purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit with sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently and with a pure heart. 1 Peter 2.17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. Finally, 1 Peter 4.8 And above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of what? Pride, arrogance, Self-promotion, short-tempered, impatient behavior, it all of it, every bit of it, sows disunity and can lead to factions, cliques, and church splits. The great Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost, he told of a church split that was so serious that each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess from the others from the church. You know, imagine a church. And half of you over here and the other half of you go to a court and try to get the other half kicked out. Completely disregarding the biblical injunction not to go to court against fellow believers, he writes. And the civil courts thought it out, but eventually it came to a church court. So this was most likely a denominational structure where it belonged. And the higher judiciary of the church made its decision and awarded the church property to one of two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. But get this. In the course of the proceedings, the church courts found that the conflict had begun at a church dinner a food and fellowship, where an elder received a smaller portion of ham than the child who was sitting next to him. Wow. (laughs) So, divisiveness. So, perhaps when you and I talk about unity, we're all ears, right? We should be. I mean, who doesn't want to see unity among us? But as you examine the real meaning of these words, you may stop and say, you know, wait a minute, this is going to cost me something. This is going to cost me something. In verse 3, it says we're to endeavor to be diligent and stick with it. And we're going to talk about that at the end. We're going to cover verse 3 at the end of today's message. But these distinctive qualities of unity should remind us of the fruits of the Spirit. You know it, Galatians 5, and 23. What does it say? But the fruit of the Spirit is, well, you guys read it. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against what? Such there is no law. And that brings us to the next part of today's message. Where does this Christian unity originate? 
I mean, if it's not for me, if I, have, I know my own struggles, then who? Well, here we see, obviously, yes, the equation. It's a simple equation. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit. You see, the, another display of how we're going to talk about the Trinity, how the Trinity um, works together in what's been called the seven unities. These are seven things where all true believers share, regardless of where they live, regardless of what age, what denomination or non-denomination, what worship preference they may have. We all share these things in common. The one body and the one spirit. The Holy Spirit creates the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, to have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Like the human body, with one head in many parts, the church or the head, Jesus has many members representing him to the world, around the world. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, One body, Jew or Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, all of these otherwise conflicting types of people have been placed in one body, the church. There was never meant to be an old person's church or the young people's church. God didn't establish the rich people's church or the poor people's church. He didn't have in mind the black church or the white church or a traditional church and a contemporary church. There's only one body of believers. With one spirit, under one spirit, we see the Holy Spirit's unifying nature here. Now, unfortunately, you and I, we, we, or, or, you know, we can all be guilty of this. If the Spirit is the source of unity, along with the entire Trinity, actually, but we can quench the Holy Spirit when we put our brand or our denomination or non-essential church doctrines as opposed to biblical doctrines. And biblical doctrines, even though there's some disagreement, are important. But when we put those non-essential church doctrines or our brand or our denomination out in front of love and respect for others in the body of Christ. Remember, the big, the body of Christ. That's wrong. And we can quench the spirit. I've had many conversations with people. And when you, you kind of go off the rails on what you believe or what you like about your church or this and that. But we need to be remembered that there's only one body and one spirit. And we all have something to celebrate about that. And he says in verse 4b, he says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So what is hope? It's the joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation for a Christian. That's what hope is. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm hoping for. And that's what I believe in. And every genuine believer, see, this is where the common ground comes together. Every genuine believer has the same hope. There's a great day of redemption coming. It's going to be a new world created perfectly for Christ Jesus and his people. 
Life in the new heavens and earth will be a life of love and joy and peace. And so no matter where you might differ with others about their theology, their eschatology, you can always come back to this. Isn't it going to be glorious, our time in heaven together, brother or sister? Some view our responsibilities as like those of us who have sort of a dual citizenship. We're here on earth. We're really not. This isn't really our home. We already have our citizenship in heaven, but we, we have here on earth, we're, we're called to be unified by the hope of heaven and to do the things that are right in the, in the eyes of God. Verse 5, he says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So now we go from the Spirit to the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is the head of all things to the church. He is not now, or excuse me, he is now not only the authority and possessor, writes this one, but he unifies them into one heavenly people. Remember that third race we've been talking about. That's where all the religious barriers were broken down. Now we're a third race of people, the church, brought together by Christ, the head of the church. And so if there's only one Lord, truly, only one Lord, then there can only be one faith. Because he is the Lord who creates only one faith. So we all stand on the same ground as Christians. On the same level. Jude 1.3 Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, this word baptisma is the definition of water baptism. One of the two ordinances along with communion that are commanded by Jesus in which we observe here. The passage is not intended to determine what the lawful mode of baptism is, whether it's sprinkling, pouring, or full immersion. That's not what the the passage is intended. And, you know, since Paul is focusing on Christian unity, some scholars believe that it's also kind of beside the point, if you will, to question whether, whether this is about spirit baptism or water baptism, both of which exist, I believe. But that's not the question at hand. And there is disagreement on this. But what is clear is this. When he says one baptism, there is not a separate baptism for Jews and another separate baptism for Gentiles. That's been wiped. It's no longer like that. And so we've seen the work of the Spirit. We've seen the work of Jesus and now God the Father in verse 6. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in y'all. That's where you got that. It came from that. I know, it's, it's biblical, right? It's biblical. Not funny, not funny, Pastor John, I'm sorry. I love to say that word, and I'm not even originally from here, as you can tell. Uh, sorry, okay. <clears throat> one God and one Father of all. As Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been made children of one God. And we can address him as Abba, Because why? Because we no longer dread him as a stern judge of sinners. You need to have a right view of the Father. You may talk about Jesus. You may may know Jesus. You may know about Jesus. But you've got to have a right view of the Father. 
John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, in Jesus' name, who is above all. God controls all. We know that. He's sovereign above all. We can let the things that happen in this world happen. We can do our part in this world and participate in things like elections, but God is sovereign above all, okay? We need to be reminded of that. One writer says this, As the Spirit, the Son, and the Father are one, so we are also one who we were created in Christ's image, or God's image, excuse me, and recreated to be conformed into the image of Christ. We were created in God's image, but we are designed to be, through redemption, to be recreated and conformed to the image of Christ. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, the, 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 the marvelous oneness of believers in the family of God is evident here. For God is over all and working through all and in all. We are children of the same family, loving and serving the same Father, so we ought to be able to walk together in unity. <laughs> you would think we could. I mean, our society is divided, and unfortunately, so our churches are so divided. Just as in an earthly family, the various members have to give and take in order to keep a loving unity in their home. So God's heavenly family must do the same. He said, the Lord's prayer opens with our father, not my father. But it's very helpful to know for us, all of us, that this Christian unity is not something that originates with us. You know, as we've been saying, yesterday uh, many of us had the privilege of joining hands with fellow believers from all different denominations and non-denominations, all different churches, all different backgrounds, for a prayer walk, to stand together for something we all felt needed to be spoken about, and that's protection of the unborn. And that's care for those who are born, the adoption of people, adoption of children. But as Christians, you know it, we're often criticized for the exclusive nature of our faith. Eternal life can only come through faith in Jesus. There is no alternate path. And it's not acceptable to God because that's what God has told us. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because the narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. We stand on that truth lovingly to the world. And I recently heard a pastor uh, present a great response to those who say, you know, why does Christianity have to be so exclusive? Those who have a, you know, they dislike or they distrust Jesus as being the only way. You know, it's not inclusive enough. And he, he poses a question. If there was a single pill available on the market that could cure any disease, but it had to be that one pill, that single pill, and if you took that pill, it would cure cancer, it would cure diabetes, it would cure heart disease. That one single pill being available, would you complain about it being the only way to life? I don't think so. I don't think a person would make the same claim.
And so even despite our problems and we see in the church, we know that truly God's true believers, true Christians who love him and follow his word and walk in obedience, and even those who are you know, being called back in and have been disobedient, those who come to know him, we know that our church, the unity, since it's created by him, this unity is created by God, it's also indestructible. But you say, okay, you know, you've, you've told us, you know, all the, all the things about what it means, how, how to walk in our, our, in our manner of walk, to be gentle, to be humble. The fact that the unity has already been created, it's, it's based on God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What, what are we to do? Well, remember verse 3, he says, you and I endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, that's where we come in. That's where we roll up our sleeves. Now that word endeavoring, is, it means to exert oneself. It means to, to give diligence. It means you and I should be eager to maintain the unity with a sense of urgency. To keep that unity of the Spirit. Notice he says to keep the unity. You don't make the unity You don't create the unity. You didn't originate the unity. That was done by God. We are to keep the unity. It's our individual responsibility. And uh, Schaefer says this, It is simply this, that each Christian is expected to recognize and to love every other Christian. Not just ones in your church. Not just ones in your family. The verb endeavoring, it's, it's, it's a, the way the Greek language is written. It's a present participle. What does that mean? It means that we have to constantly be at work at this. Because <laughs> of all the things we described about ourselves, knowing yourself. And, you know, when we think the situation is best in a fellowship, Satan will move in to wreck it. The spiritual unity of a home and a Sunday school class or a church is the responsibility of each person involved and the job never ends. And so we endeavor to keep the unity in the bond of peace. You see, this bond, it's something, this peace that comes from God is what holds everything together. One illustration is, you know, a bundle of twigs. And each twig, it's got its own geometric proportion. Some are skinny, long, you know, fat and tall and whatever. But the bond, this, this, this bond of peace, this, this mystery of the church holds us all together. Unity is not uniformity. We all don't think the like. I mean, I don't even need to tell any of us that. Unity is not uniformity. That we're all saying the exact same thing on every single thing, every single topic. Unity comes from within. It's a spiritual grace. While uniformity, if you will, is a result of external structure. Structure that forms the church. And, you know, we could get it. We're not going to go down that road. But uniformity is a result of pressure from without. Unity is a result of what's within us. Spiritual grace. So let's put it all together as we conclude for today. I would just say, you know what? Folks, we we know, you guys know this. We need to look to Jesus. We need to look to his example. He embodies the description in verse 2 of all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. If we'll look to Jesus, 
and apply these principles. The other thing is we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't try to white-knuckle your faith and solve the problems that come before you in your own strength. That's how we grow old and tired, which is going to happen anyway. So let's enjoy it and let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And finally, I would just say, stick with it. You know, I feel like I'm definitely preaching to the choir because you guys are so faithful to come to church. You're so faithful to be here with it. But let's, let's grow to another level, if you will, in Christ together. You know, another level could be maybe more people decide to come to prayer, prayer time. And I know schedules can be a problem. And I know whole, household responsibilities can be a, a hindrance to that. But we have opportunities to meet together in prayer. We have opportunities in our midweek. I invite ladies that have been with Margaret, invite your husbands to come, maybe if it's possible, to the midweek study. Spend time in the Lord and together. You know, it's less talking that I got to do if you guys are here together loving on one another and talking. I can tell you that right now. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for our, the message from your word. And I pray, Lord, it would, uh, it would ring true in our hearts and minds, Lord God. It, it, would, it would just help us in our walk, you know, help propel us, whether it's one foot at a time or, you know, maybe we're jumping with joy to know the work that you're doing in our hearts and minds right now. And Lord, you, you see every single struggle that we may have, every single uh, impediment to achieving the things that you call us to do. And we simply ask, Lord God, that you would, you would pour your love and your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, that we would be open for that to receive from you all the good things that you have, all the great things that we've been talking about that we, we already possess in you. May it shine in our hearts and our minds today as we walk together in the Lord. I pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand up and shake it out and, and, uh, and exercise our voices a little bit reciting this closing prayer excuse me scripture let's make it a prayer he is the image of the invisible firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. God bless you all. Go and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.